Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Tyg Savage, co-founder and managing partner of Revolution Ventures. Revolution is a venture capital fund based in Washington, D.C. Some of their investments include RunKeeper, HomeSnap, FrameBridge, and Living Social. This episode really hit home for me. I'm originally from the D.C. area and absolutely love going back home. It's probably bad form that it's taken me this long to have an investor that's based there on the show. I learned so much from my conversation with Tyg. Uh, Tyg's amazing. You'll learn how Revolution invests in companies that are outside the Bay Area, something they've been doing years and years before. Then I think the majority of folks in venture, how Tyg views risk at the early stages and also how he thinks about sustainability within brands. Without further ado, here's Tyg. Ty, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Oh, Mike, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to spending a little time with you. I really appreciate it. So I wanted to first to talk about the early days. What was your initial attraction to venture capital and startups? That's a good question. I sort of backed into this industry early in my career. Uh, I had the good fortune of end up being sort of the right-hand guy as a, you know, as a, as a young person for a local businessman who had built sort of a financial services business and a, a media business. And I got more and more involved in those, those businesses. And at one point, I ended up on the board of this media company and was involved in making some investments for them. And that was really when the light bulb went off for me. That really motivated me. It was very exciting. And I, I sort of, that was the first time I, I clearly had a path of, of what I wanted to do. And that was, yeah, that was well over two decades ago. And I've sort of pursued that ever since. That's awesome. And how did Revolution come together? And what was, I guess, the reason behind it? Yeah, so uh, Steve and I started Revolution over 15 years ago. Uh, Steve Case, um, the founder of AOL, he and I got to know each other because I was overseeing the, the venture capital group at AOL Time Warner, the merged entity. When he left the company, we agreed to get together and start a new firm, essentially trying to uh, reinvent industries in the same way that AOL, in some regards, had reinvented sort of you know what has now become the modern internet. Um, so we called it Revolution. It's kind of, a, you know, in retrospect, uh, I guess, a little audacious. But we called it Revolution for a reason. Um, you got to remember, you know, whatever this was, 15, 20 years ago, venture investing was mostly sort of old school healthcare kind of investing, and then old school enterprise software, boxes, telecom, things like that. And that's not really what we were focused on. What we wanted to do is go to existing categories where billions of dollars were being spent in an old-fashioned way, where we thought technology could help revolutionize, hence the name, the business model, make it better for consumers, take out margin, increase convenience, increase you know, a bunch of the consumer aspects of the business. And that's really what we started with. So a revolution initially was investing principal capital, you know, it was Ardo, but primarily Steve's. Uh, and we invested a significant portion in that in a handful of companies that we are really proud of. And then ultimately, we institutionalized the firm, uh, raised outside capital, and now we're a series of funds. We're an early stage seed fund. 
We have a venture sort of Series A, Series B fund. That's what I oversee. That's called Revolution Ventures. We also have a later stage uh, growth fund. And what they share in common is that theme, but also something, uh, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about it a little bit, that we've really focused on through the life of Revolution, which is investing in uh, off the beaten path geographies. So we've had a lot of success helping to build ecosystems and then invest in ecosystems in areas that are, you know, outside Silicon Valley, outside New York, outside Boston. We're not against that. We, you know, we have plenty of investments in places like New York, et cetera, but we've spent a lot of time and energy building ecosystems in those sort of new geographies. And I think the entire country is now seeing the um, sort of the, some of the fruits of that as those are becoming much more mainstream ways to invest. Totally. And it seems like you were pretty early there when it came to thinking about investing in companies that were outside Silicon Valley since you started your fund now, what, like 17 years ago? Yeah. So, you know, listen, we're based in Washington, D.C. We're based here because that's where we both lived. And we knew that we were going to be spending time on the road. Our, our aspirations were to invest in this community, but we also had bigger aspirations than just that. So we knew we were going to be spending time on the road, flying to places, building our portfolio and working on companies. And we didn't have the luxury, frankly, of being on Sand Hill Road, for example, and being able to you know, ride our bike to all of our portfolio companies. So we invested where we saw opportunities and we saw opportunities in a lot of places. And then at some point, you know, several years into it, we looked back at where we had driven some really favorable returns and where we felt like we'd made an impact you know, more broadly. And we realized there were places like Tampa, where we did Revolution Money, Washington, D.C., where we did Living Social, Portland, Oregon, where we found the company that ultimately became Zipcar. And then we really focused on, on that ever since. And Steve has put a lot of his sort of personal time and capital into being an advocate for this in, in a lot of ways as well. Well, how did you think about those sourcing at the very early stages in terms of picking regions or cities that you wanted to focus on? Because of course, if you're located in Silicon Valley, you know, and you're investing in Silicon Valley, everything is kind of in your backyard. So everything kind of comes to you. But, you know, for the rest of the U.S., you know, obviously U.S. is a pretty big country. How did you go about and making sure you were very efficient with your time? Yeah, listen, I'm sure we could have been more efficient with our time in retrospect. But a lot of it is like time in shoe leather. And the, the nice thing is these geographies, many of them are good at something. In Nashville, there's a lot of healthcare. In Memphis, there's a lot of logistics. There are folks who are just particularly... Uh, talented in that regard, but they hadn't had a spotlight cast on them. So the geographies, by and large, were very welcoming of our going there. Uh, we started a series of bus tours where we would really put a spotlight on a community, come in. We'd try to be a convening factor, bring in the local funds or investors or angels. We would do, we'd put together events and uh, have a competition. It would end with a party at the end of the day and hop on the bus and go to the next place. And those were great because they really energized things. And for us, exposed us to the ecosystem. And then it was incumbent on us to, to continue to spend time in those geographies to build those ecosystems. And I think that's something that's paid dividends, not just for us, but for those geographies and now more broadly for other investors who are discovering that there's, are, you know, that there's some great places to play capital. And now when you look at what's happened with the pandemic, you know, just about every firm has a strategy investing all over the place, given the mobility that folks now realize exists. Totally. And I mean, even before the pandemic, since of course you're investing in different parts of the United States, were you comfortable writing checks when you haven't met the team or because from the very beginning of revolution, you knew, hey, we're going to be on the road a lot. We have to meet the team in person in order to make the investment. 
so listen, our strategy at Revolution Ventures, particularly the thing that, that I'm involved in, um, we only make a handful of investments a year. They're focused. We have a concentrated capital strategy. We think of ourselves as long-term partners for these, these founders who we back invest in and you know invest not just our dollars, but our time. So historically, before the pandemic, we had met and spent a lot of time with everybody we'd invested in. 100% true statement. Obviously, things were really different last year. It took a little while for us to get our head around what that meant. But ultimately, we got comfortable with deploying capital into companies where we hadn't met founders. We ultimately found a way to do that. But what it really meant is references were more important than they ever were before. And deep references, two or three degrees away, you know, really uh, utilizing our networks, diving through LinkedIn to find anybody we might know who they know, et cetera, because there is something for certain that you get by sitting down and spending a couple of days with somebody that is just harder to do on Zoom, et cetera. But we found a way to do it. And you know, for our firm, that's, that's how we did it. I've heard from investors on this show that said, during the pandemic, if you're an entrepreneur and you already had an investor base or you knew investors that due to COVID, since you're not able to, since investors aren't able to actually meet entrepreneurs in person, it was easier for them to raise capital then from founders who didn't have an investment network to, I think, your point in that you might not have any references there. Do you think that that during this period, it was tougher for even more difficult, even though investors were, at one hand, more comfortable making or had to be more comfortable making investments when you hadn't met the founders, but for the founders that didn't have an investment network, since investors could actually meet with them, it was actually tougher. Uh, Mike, I think you are 100% correct. And your guests who talked about this, I, t- I just totally agree with them. The numbers at a macro level, there's a lot of talk about more dollars have been deployed into VC than they ever have been, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all true. But the numbers are deceiving. It's been really a world, at least you know, my perspective of haves and have nots. And the haves have gotten more and more funding, partly because of the risks or the, the challenges of the pandemic. Let me explain what I mean. So companies with existing investor bases or with relationships with VCs that were in place before the pandemic had a decided advantage over those who didn't. Because people who are in the business of deploying capital want to get that capital out the door. And as prices have gone up and velocity has gone up and there's been increasing rewards, at least in the short term, we can talk about whether in the long term it's, you know, it's true, but increasing rewards for deploying capital faster, raising it faster, doing more and more funds. As that's been true, the desire at a macro level of VCs to deploy capital in greater amounts at a higher velocity has increased and the pandemic made that hard. So any firm that had a deep relationship with a fund and it was showing positive traction, performing reasonably well, et cetera, was inundated with demand because it's very hard to do all of that diligence that we talked about. And it implies a lot of risk versus just paying more or writing a bigger check to get into something known. You know, to say it another way, I think a number of firms traded the risks of the unknown for pricing risk in the pandemic, right? So they took pricing risk, they deployed dollars into the things that they knew. And what that left were lots and lots and lots of companies that they didn't know who had a very difficult time getting the attention of VCs. And if they could get their attention, overcoming the hurdle of being unknown. So the velocity and size of dollars deployed in 2020 into VC was the greatest in history. You know, maybe to be eclipsed in 2021, we'll see, we're on a track for that. The percentage of deals going into first-time institutional investments was the lowest in the period of time that they've actually kept track of the statistics. 
So a real have and have not kind of situation. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like it was the highest point of like fear of missing out, right? When a company does have traction and there is, then you don't want to miss out on that since other investors maybe have, since it's easier to do diligence or of course you have those kind of reference or, or nodes that are there. And so you're going to write the check because you don't want to miss on that deal. Yeah, so the, so we've seen that a lot. I mean, that's not really how we run our business. We, um, we if you look at the history of how we've invested, we're comfortable being more contrarian. We're comfortable having a, um, a more traditional pace of deploying capital. The first deal we did in the pandemic, a company called Goodbye Gear, Goodbye Gear, which was based in Denver. Um, we did that deal. And we were the first institutional capital, serious institutional capital into the firm. Um, we really had not met the team. We did it virtually. It was an early A, you know, the seed and A and all that so blurred right now, but in terms of sort of where they are. And we were happy to do that. And they just were not getting attention from investors in the way a lot of other companies were because they didn't have those relationships. It was a brand new startup, you know, begun by a couple of women founders with a really good idea. And we see opportunity there. We like to go where sort of the world's not going. So the fact that a number of these companies during the pandemic were underappreciated, we think gave us an opportunity to deploy capital in a way that the market wasn't. But, you know, notwithstanding how we think about deploying capital as a firm um, and how we try to take advantage of an anomaly during the pandemic, the general point which you brought up is there really have been haves and have-nots. Totally. I really appreciate you sharing that. As we kind of come out of COVID here, how do you think about venture capital uh, changing? Do you think that we're going to see now a shift of venture capitalists uh, going back to actually taking on the risk of investing maybe a first-time founder or a founder that didn't have a network? and be more competitive in that sector? Or do you think that's going to be more similar to what we've seen in COVID? No, I think that once the paths to a new deal sourcing and relationship building open up, it'll revert you know, to more traditional... Revert back. Yeah, revert back. You know, What's going to be interesting to see, and it's not just COVID, um, but COVID accelerated it, will be how does the venture capital asset class continue to change, revert back, et cetera? So, you know, historically venture, um, returns in venture are driven by outliers. You've got a 10X that makes up for a bunch of losses, the old adage that's always stuck in, in this business. That sort of binary outcome approach to investing as the checks have gotten bigger and bigger and larger and larger, um, and the funds have gotten bigger and larger, has led to even more binary investing, bigger checks um, going into more things. So if you're, you know, listen, if you're in the business of trying to invest in a huge outcome, the biggest risk you take is not investing in the thing that might be big, right? That's a way higher risk to you than, you know, being smart on price for the 11th investment, you know, if you were only going to make 10 investments, right? That's led to, I think, a big part of this sort of valuation increase. And as the markets for exits have been very robust, the potential for exits have gotten bigger. So the price at which investors will invest has gotten higher. And the competition for those, call them lottery tickets, is, has become greater, if that makes sense. So it's going to be interesting to see if the venture business continues to swing harder and harder and harder in the direction of only backing multi-billion dollar huge outcomes to the um, to the deficit of companies that could drive real venture returns, but aren't going to be a $10 billion outcome. Because that's the thing that got accelerated in COVID. It's a natural characteristic of venture. But for the reasons that we talked about before, 
sort of unlimited capital is available for things that might be huge outcomes. And that leaves a lot of potentially interesting companies by the side of the road. So I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch, how the industry uh, as a whole, as we come out of COVID, either moderates or continues to bifurcate. And if you're a founder during this period, what kind of goes through your head? Because I mean, as you're kind of talking about this, we've now seen some pretty incredible valuations, as you described. We see you know, even like crossover funds coming into venture capital, there's been so much money in venture. When you're a founder and trying to pick a partner, maybe at like the Series A stage, for example, or seed, what's kind of going through your head and what you should be thinking about? Well, listen, I think this is probably a better question asked of the founders you have on your show than the the investors. But I think there's a tension, but there's a potential tension if you are a founder taking investment between what appears to be the highest valuation, the lowest dilution, et cetera, and what that implies for the long term. Because oftentimes, if you take that highest valuation, you've sort of gotten on that train of lottery tickets that we talked about, right? Versus somebody who's not penalized that the company doesn't have perfect execution right out of the blocks, right? Most VCs are busy and have uh, you know broad portfolios. And the way they can manage their broad portfolios, whether they sort of admit this or not, that's not the way that we run our firm, but I think generally speaking, is you cut your losses quickly on the things that aren't getting traction. And to the extent that you know it was a very expensive round from an investor standpoint, very inexpensive, low dilution from the uh, founder standpoint, you run the risk of if things don't go that well, not mattering that much to your VC. So one of my favorite phrases as, as we talk to founders is make sure you matter as much to your VC as your VC matters to you. And there are a lot of elements to that. One is obviously the price, but the other is, you know, what's the track record of sticking around in the bad days, not just the good days. And then different founders are looking for different things from their VCs. Some just want passive investment, like leave me alone, let me do my thing, show up at a board meeting. And there's like nothing wrong with that. Some want a lot of involvement and mentorship, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you get different things from different VCs. And the best way to diligence this, I think, is to talk to prior founders and CEOs of the handful of VCs that are showing some interest in in your round and get their feedback because that's a pretty closed loop. And that's a good way for a founder to determine what it is they're solving for. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, um, also as well, talk to a VC's portfolio companies maybe haven't gone according to plan, right? Maybe haven't worked out and see how the venture capitalist actually, you know, was still in it or still very active on the board in terms of trying to get it right rather than maybe being passive. I wanted to also discuss what were some of your learnings from COVID on changes in consumer behavior? It could be um, trends or different categories. Maybe you shift your focus to a certain category. Just love to learn about what were some of your learning as we kind of come out of this period. Yeah, no, this is, you know, it's really fun and interesting to reflect on COVID because it's going to ultimately be such an experiment. You know, the data out of this for all kinds of scientific experiments couldn't have been created. And we're going to see for a long time the results of that, you know, and, and from the standpoint of VC, it's super interesting. You know, we do a balance of enterprise and consumer stuff. I tend to focus as you know, on a number of consumer things. And consumer behavior has been really interesting. As you know, historically, extremely mobile millennials started to settle down. And what does that imply with their consumption patterns? And you know, what does that mean? As 
e-commerce just continues to matter more and more and more to consumers, what are the points of differentiation for an e-commerce company? And one of the things that I think COVID made very clear is just being slicker, cooler, better branding, et cetera, those things matter, but they're important but insufficient to have a really differentiated company. You know, if you have no stock, if you have no supply chain, if you can't deliver, it doesn't matter how good it looks. And you know, a lot of e-commerce companies started realizing it's not just the front end, but the back end uh, that matters as well. It's one of the reasons that you know, a number of the companies that we've invested in historically uh, in the e-commerce space, we've looked at um, uh, what has attracted us to them is actually some differentiation in how they produce, how they fulfill, et cetera. We're invested in Bloomscape, which is a direct-to-consumer houseplant company. Essentially, they have nearly 100 varieties of plants. They deliver to your door in two to three days. They're the only company that can deliver from small to extra large to your door, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you start thinking about how do you go from a greenhouse to your door when it's cold out or, you know, or it gets turned upside down on a FedEx truck or whatever it is, how do you do that is interesting. And that was started by a very clever founder who's in, you know, his family had a long career in horticulture. And this was, you know, he'd spent a lot of time trying to solve this problem. We loved that. Or a company, a DC company you might know called Framebridge, which essentially reinventing custom framing. And yeah, you know, it's amazing when you go down to the framing shop on the corner, um, one, it's expensive, but two, the way they make a frame would be like going to a cobbler to get your shoes. You say, you know what? Let me measure a shoe. Which leather do you like? You know, what stitching do you want? Like, that's crazy. Like, who, who cobbles a shoe? Well, they, they cobble um, frames these days. So the whole idea with that is how do we build a really efficient production facility that the 21st century approach to a traditional thing? So I think the companies that have been like that have really been rewarded in COVID because supply chain matters so much to the to the story. No, that makes sense. And, you know, obviously when it comes to digitally native brands, we experienced in the late 2000s and early 2010s, there was a lot of arbitrage opportunity with Google and Facebook. Really, it was, um, you know, an access play. If you were online, then maybe you, you did pretty well. But it seems like now, especially now, and I think that those those examples that you pointed out are, are really great examples for this, but there has to be some sort of competitive advantage or differentiation in the product itself. It can't just be like Disney Dev as an access point. Is that fair to say? I agree 100%, right? So, um, and I think your, your view of the arc of this makes a lot of sense. We invested and we were the first investors in a company called Living Social. Living Social essentially existed or came, got big by taking care of that arbitrage that, or taking advantage of that arbitrage you talked about. Right. How do we match, you know, small merchants with our ability to smartly buy inventory on social platforms, migrate them to email lists? And they and Groupon built a big company out of that for a short while. Those days are over, right? The days of thinking that you're smarter than Facebook's algorithm are over. Companies that have most profited from venture capital being invested in sort of undifferentiated VC are Google and Facebook. Right, because that's where those dollars went. It's really the companies that for whom e-commerce is not a channel, but instead the front end to something differentiated that we think makes for staying power. We, you know, we're invested in uh, a company called Policy Genius, another woman-founded company. Uh, they deliver 
a number of things, but their primary focus is life insurance online. And that's a really good use of the online channel because the days of, you know, the 60-year-old insurance salesman coming, sitting around your table with a millennial in, you know, in a very obfuscated kind of sale, are that's not what the next generation of consumers want. So what they made simple was comparing policies, making it easy to get issued you, in 24 hours without going to some nurse or you know, having your blood pressure taken or whatever. You can have a, you know, a policy issued. You can understand the advantages and disadvantages of each, just comparison shopping. To do that was hard because it has to integrate into all of these different issuer systems, right? And the incumbents don't really want you to be able to do that because comparing in the insurance company, you know, industry takes margin out for the sellers. And you know, Policy Genius is very focused on delivering value to the buyers. But those integrations to the various issuers ultimately is a differentiator in terms of consumer utility, but also um, has made it a, you know, they've they've issued you know, over $100 billion worth of policies to 30 million customers. And, um, you know, it's a really neat company. I really appreciate you bringing up Policy Genius. Since they're in life insurance, it's a pretty relegated um, category. What's it like when you're writing that check to a company or looking at a company that is in a heavily relegated category? Um, we think this is one of the areas where being in Washington, D.C. is actually a differentiator for us. We're not scared of regulated industries. In fact, we've sort of jumped in with two feet in some cases. You know, we've been around Washington a long time and we know a lot of people. And that has historically been something that capital T technology companies have avoided. Obviously, the world's very different now. If I think if you were to ask anybody, one of the primary risks for big tech is in Washington, D.C. right now. So there's there's a sort of a realization that's happened over the last several years that didn't before. But we've always been comfortable understanding that there are opportunities in regulated industries. You just have to be respectful of what those regulations are trying to accomplish. And you have to be clever enough to be able to work within them. But listen, the easy money and the easy industries have already transformed, right? The hard ones are the ones that are left. And regulation sometimes is one of the reasons that's hard. That's why, you know, it took a long time for a, you know, life insurance company to end up online. And Jen and Fran, her co-founder, and the whole team there have done a really expert job of doing it. And it's an area where we think that at Revolution, we're, you know, we're particularly adept at being helpful to them. I also wanted to touch on, too, I feel like when it comes to at least what Disney brands, there's a lot of words like eco-friendly and sustainable. Do you believe that those are now table stakes for companies that are starting? Um, as a general statement, Yes. Um, but I don't think every company has to say they're eco-friendly or sustainable. But what I do think is that the need for consumers or the desire for consumers to be more in touch with the environment is amplified. The expectations are increased. There's an entire generation that has just a different set of expectations. So I wouldn't say the words eco-friendly or sustainable or table stakes. Instead, the transparency that uh, technology enables and the desire for consumers to know where their stuff came from enables companies that are that are sustainable and eco-friendly to win right so i think that's a distinction you know between companies that really stand for something and companies that label themselves right i think the companies that really stand for something and still have a strong value proposition are positioned to win you know i mentioned goodbye gear which is uh, the company based in Denver. 
They're a e-commerce company. I think it's a great example of a business model and better for the environment conspiring. So this company exists to resell um, gently used and certified baby goods. So you know anybody who's a parent knows that you buy a bassinet or a car seat or a stroller and you use them for some number of months and then the kid outgrows them and they're expensive. And historically, those things get thrown away. The reverse logistics channel, even if you think they're being used somewhere, really they they go to Goodwill and they get thrown away or something like that. Goodbye gear exists to collect that stuff, remarket that stuff, certify it, because obviously these are kids. You have to make sure it's good. And they've built an entire business around sort of eco-friendly and sustainability. So I think that's a really good example of um, where a transparent value chain or a transparent supply chain serves to benefit a company and a consumer. Speaking about marketplaces, now we've kind of seen this trend of managed marketplaces come to a fruition, like like Goodbye Gear. Do you think that moving forward, we're going to see a lot, like if you were to start like a, a marketplace today, it has to be managed? Or can you theoretically start a marketplace that's, that's unmanaged and still be successful? Marketplaces are historically a chicken and egg problem. How do you solve the chicken and egg problem is the question. Like a managed marketplace is a way to deal with that. If you happen to sit on a ton of inventory or you happen to represent the interests of a lot of consumers, then you've sort of solved that and you can do it. Those are few and far between. Marketplace companies can be extremely valuable if they achieve scale, but that's because achieving scale is so difficult. And for anything that is not just a massive consumer of capital and a recipient of good luck and a recipient of some sort of intrinsic differentiation, I think the great majority of those will be managed. What is one thing you would change about venture capital? I think I'd change a couple things about venture capital. One is, I think, getting back to financing good ideas and companies and helping them succeed versus investing in lottery tickets and jettisoning the things that would, by prior definitions, be on a path to potentially being successful, but just don't get enough traction early enough. And they cost so much that I'm going to focus on this other thing that's getting more traction, going to get marked up faster. Um, I think leaves behind lots of good opportunities and ideas. The greatest positive impact on the world has been commerce. Now, people may disagree with that, et cetera. But, you know, I think business makes the world go round and you, you have to put the right things around it, et cetera. And um, having ways for entrepreneurs to be successful is really important. And that's a role that venture capital can play. It's just becoming, I think, a little too binary. So one would be to make that less binary. And the second is, I think that by and large, people who work in the venture community are from a social standpoint, value standpoint, reasonably progressive people. I mean, I think they're all over the board in terms of where they, you know, economically conservative or progressive, et cetera, but mostly a progressive group of folks. That said, the investors don't reflect um, society and the opportunities don't reflect society. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the percentage of dollars that have gone into women-backed companies over the last you know, 15 years, it's been a pretty dramatic change. But 10 years ago, people were really talking about this as being a vacancy. Over a third of the investments we've made are women back. Is that good enough? Well, listen, women are half the people, you know, around the world. So it's probably not good enough, but it's a heck of a lot better than it was a long time ago. But 
the cycle times in venture capital are extremely long, right? You hold, you invest, you hold companies for five or 10 years, et cetera. So it takes a long time to make a big impact. That said, um, I think the entire industry can do a lot better in terms of who are the investors, what are the opportunities, et cetera. And how do you get the right balance between making sure that you're investing in things that create value for your LPs? And how are you, and how do you make sure that you're being as, your aperture is as wide as possible to make sure you're investing in companies that really reflect society or the, you know, the people who are in society. Yeah, that all makes sense. I mean, on women founders, when I had on Elizabeth Galbett, who is the founder of SoGal Ventures, she believes that um, investing in women is still like the biggest arbitrage opportunity of our generation, just because when it comes to consumer, the majority of spend is actually dictated by, by women and not men. I listened to that piece. I thought it was a great interview. And we agree, you know, we're, as I said, you know, nobody's perfect, but the Policy Genius is a woman run, you know, founded firm, Facebook women founded firm. And like the decision makers on these things, as, um, as your guest had said, are oftentimes women. You know, it's not, we didn't back those because they were women founded firms. We backed them because they were really good ideas. And because the founders were women, they saw the opportunity, I think. That's totally right. Totally right. Um, what is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? So, you know, it's, it's funny. I read a lot, but I don't, I don't read business books. You know, I, I feel like I spend all my day doing, doing business. So I read a lot of nonfiction stuff. I read a little bit of fiction stuff, but a book that I reread this, I guess, last year during the pandemic, because it's such a darn long book that I first read in high school that really had an impact on me personally when I was young was a book written in the 70s by James Michener called Chesapeake. And it really tracked the history of the Chesapeake Bay from the time it was discovered uh, up, until, up until the 70s. And it really created a passion for me about this area. We try to be helpful with, with a number of sort of you know, efforts around the Chesapeake. It inspired my interest in sailing. But also, uh, as I reread the book, you know, something I didn't appreciate in the 80s when I was in high school, reading this big, thick book, like half that book was about slavery and the role that played in sort of the building of the Chesapeake is right on the Mason-Dixon line, right? It goes from Pennsylvania down to North Carolina. And there were free states, there were slave states, and this was written right at the sort of the end of the 60s, 70s social changes that had gone on. And Michener was pretty passionate about that. And as I reread that, um, it just, it, it reminded me how far we've come, but it really illustrates how far we've got to go. No, that's a great, that's a really great point. It's a really great point. That's great that you were able to, uh, to revisit that book. That's deep. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Just do it, right? I mean, the opportunity cost of trying things is awfully low. You know, listen, for some people, they're on a shoestring and they've got three kids and they're a single parent and just do it implies a whole lot of opportunity cost. But the world is increasingly accepting of risk. The cost of starting a business has never been lower than it is. If you have an idea, go for it. If you want to work at a startup, do it. You know, just try it. I mean, it's pretty trite to say that, but Oftentimes, the biggest inhibitor to somebody's success is their perception of the change that they've got, you know, locked around. My final question for you is: What's the best piece of advice that you've received? So I was fortunate. I'm not sure I can bring this down to one piece of advice, 
um, I had mentioned, you know, at the beginning of our time together, how I got into venture capital. I was sort of right hand guy for this guy who gave me a, his name was Joe Albert and he's passed away. Um, but he was a self-made billionaire back when that was a thing and pretty differentiated. He took this young guy, me under his wing and showed me how business really got done. Um, and that wasn't one piece of advice, but business gets done in a lot of dimensions and the people element of it and sort of the diplomacy of people and the confidence to be able to be in front of people is what I really learned from him. And you just can't, you know, this is a world that rewards extroverts. I've, you know, one of my sons is extremely introverted. I'm just aware of sort of this, but learning to overcome that and present yourself and pitch, right? I mean, that's one of the things I learned from this guy. Like, you're always selling. You know, listen, Steve Case is an introvert. That that'll survive. You know, that surprises a lot of people because uh, you know I don't know anybody who's more comfortable standing in front of a crowd. And he's extremely articulate and thoughtful. You know, and I've just had an opportunity to work around a bunch of people like that. So, understanding how to influence people, I think, is the most important element um, that you can have in your you know in whatever your career is. Hi, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, Mike, listen, I, I love what you're doing. Um, I've been a listener for a long time and I was delighted to have the opportunity to be with you. So thanks for the time. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Tyg on the show. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Tyg Savage. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>